And he says to me, I'm glad you're going through this. And I said, really? You're glad I'm going through this? And he said, I'm glad you're going through this because great leaders can't really lead unless they've been through a crisis or multiple crises. And I said, why? And he said, because you develop empathy. Because at some point in your career, you're going to be leading an even bigger organization. Something bad is going to happen that spins everybody up into a crisis, but you're going to have an understanding of what it's like to be in those people's shoes and you'll be able to empathize with them. And that's incredibly motivating to others and it brings people together. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Dave, I, I really appreciate you doing this, and I'll tell you, I've been looking forward to it. This is going to be a fun one. Jubin, great to see you, and I've been uh, looking forward to it as well. Thanks for having me. So I like to kick these things off by reading my guests' backgrounds to them. I'm probably going to do a relatively poor job of it, so please fill in the blanks of things that I might miss. Deal? Sounds good. This should be an adventure. <laughs> All right. So you started at the University of Washington, got your BA in political science. Then you spent 18 years at Cisco, and I'm going to profile that 18 years. First, as an associate sales rep, then a territory account manager, then a select account manager, regional manager in the mountain region of Arizona on the commercial team, regional manager for the Bay Area Select, to the director of sales operations, then VP of worldwide software and enterprise networking sales, then VP of global security sales, and then finally SVP of global security and enterprise networking sales. That is only 18 years. And then you went on to Salesforce as the EVP of North American Enterprise Sales. You spent about two years doing that and may have overlapped with previous guests, Bob Fratty, maybe not. And then as of eight months ago, maybe nine months ago now, you are the CRO of PagerDuty. What did I miss? You nailed it. There was a lot there and it's been a, uh, a wild ride. So a couple questions. And maybe I'll just start with what the hell is PagerDuty? Because for those that don't know, it's an incredible company. I'm sure most of the audience listening does know. But for those that don't, market cap just shy of about $2.3 billion. Revenue just shy of about $200 million ARR-ish. Your most recent quarter, I think, was about $45 million of revenue, again-ish. Your Series A was done by Andreessen and Bessemer, or I should say early round funding, maybe A or B. Excel, I think, did the Series C, so a few really incredible venture capital firms. And you just recruited a CEO, I say just, probably in the last couple of years, Jennifer Tejada, who is excellent, and she recruited you. Again, is that all fair and right? That's right. Okay. You went from a company, Cisco, that has 90,000 employees. PagerDuty has, what, 800 employees? And so... In my world, there is a very negative stigma with the big company guy. And I'll put you on the hot seat here already, right? Like one minute into it. But there's a negative stigma because when you have a 90,000 person organization, there's such a big support system around you. There's a big channel program that's already been defined. There's big channel managers. There's 
account managers, overlays to those account managers. There's BDR teams and then overlays to those BDR teams. And so, you know, sales operations and then overlays to those. And so there's such a giant system that often when you put someone from that system who's been conditioned to be in that system for such a long period of time and put them in a startup, and again, your definition and my definition of startups are probably very different. 800 is pretty big company for me, but relative to your history at Cisco, I think there's similarities. But what was your decision-making process when you're somewhere for 18 years, which not many people can say in their career anymore, I can imagine you have a lot of social and political capital that you've been building at that company for a very long time. Like, Just tell me about the story there. Sure, happy to. And Jubin, I do not want to lead the host, but we talked a little bit about PagerDuty's history. I do want to weave in exactly what it is that we do, and we're going to have the opportunity to do that throughout the conversation. But I think this is a great place to start, right? Because I have heard the big company guy typecast. You're not the first person to bring that up. And, you know, it is, when I look back at it, pretty remarkable how long I was at one company because I fully realize and appreciate that is not normal in today's day and age. People typically hop around a lot more. And the interesting thing about it is when I started at Cisco, you mentioned there are over 90,000 employees now, which is amazing to me because when I left, there were I think around 80,000, so they continue to grow. But when I started, they were less than 20,000. So I started in 2000, right during the uh, tail end of the dot-com heyday, and I was in their first college training program, which was a great learning ground for me because we hit the phones and had to earn our stripes in inside sales, but got a lot of great technical training, had to get various certifications, as well as, as business training, and I think it set the foundation for a good skill set to try a lot of different things in the sales world. So when I look back at it and think about, wow, how did I stay at the same place for, for so long? The company changed so much. So the company, Cisco in 2000, was very, very different when I left because they got into John Chambers was the king of finding market adjacencies that could complement what you're already doing and go into a new market. So as you know, they were very acquisitive and we got into all sorts of different technology areas, which allowed me to actually stumble into a lot of different types of roles that gave me a diversity of perspective or new skills. So the reason I think I stayed at Cisco for so long was one, the people, two, the impact that they were able to make on the world and customers, but three, and equally as important as all those, is I was constantly learning and getting to do new things and learn new technologies and not just do sales roles. I got to take on a lot of more GM type roles and global roles, work in different parts of the world, work on acquisitions and integrating acquisitions and the complexities around those and had a lot of fun in doing so. So although I was at one place, it didn't feel like the same company the whole time I was there, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And after 18 years, like you had mentioned constant learning. I'm the same way. Like as long as I'm learning and challenged and I'm out ahead of my skis to the point where I don't exactly know what I'm doing, but you know, not too far ahead where I'm not going to completely set myself up for failure. It's perfect. Sweet spot. And it sounds like you had that for an extended period of time, putting it lightly. After 18 years, did you feel like your learning stopped? Was it more that, hey, you know what? I have had the ride that I'm going to have here, and it's time to look for something else, which is how you stumbled on Salesforce? Or 
Was it more that there was an opportunity that you saw that could continue to, I don't know, give you more of the learnings that you were looking for? What did your decision-making process or framework look like at that time? Yeah, good question. And, and the learning certainly didn't stop. You just hit these inflection points in your life. I was actually, when I left, ironically enough, probably having the most fun that I had had in my entire career at Cisco because I was partnered with a GM in the security business, David Ulovich. He's now a partner over at Andreessen Horowitz, and he was the CEO of OpenDNS, which was a uh, cloud security acquisition that Cisco had brought on board. And we were running the security go-to-market together with a really talented group of other security practitioners and really having a lot of fun working on the fastest growing business within the company that's incredibly relevant in today's day and age. But I stumbled into an opportunity. I have a lot of friends that work at Salesforce and saw the impact that that company makes and the culture at that company and just thought it was time to try something new. I've been fortunate enough to work with Mark over the years. The CEO there is just a, a phenomenal leader. And you talk about that growth mindset and wanting to continually learn and challenge yourself. So the opportunity to work closer with him and take on a new challenge. And I saw the opportunity that they had and the momentum that they had and thought it was time to get myself out of my comfort zone. It was really about getting out of a comfort zone that I felt like I had been around too long and it was ready to to try a new challenge. Funny you say that. How good are these people that you're working with? These CEOs, like you have Mark Benioff, John Chambers, now Jennifer, like how incredible of examples are they running companies? I feel super fortunate and lucky that I have been able to work with all these people because I've learned a ton from all of them. And I take a little bit of it with me in in how I approach the day-to-day business, but it's been great. And I I feel very fortunate to them and have a lot of gratitude for everything that they've kind of all taught me along the way. And I would put Chuck Robbins in there too, who's now the the CEO of of Cisco and he's he's great. I actually spoke to him this morning and and we keep in touch as well. That's great. What is it like having, and by the way, this is a bit of a tangent here, but what is it like having someone like a Mark Benioff, who is such a sales-minded, sales-oriented CEO, kind of having your back or supporting you or you're reporting to him? Like, what is that like? Is that pressure? Is that like, oh boy, you might know more than me? Or is that just such a great opportunity as a mentor to just learn and soak in as much as you can? Yeah, I think it's having a comfort level to be able to learn. Because the thing about Mark is he has a maniacal focus on customers. And I think all the all those CEOs that you mentioned are laser focused on their customers. They know the problems that they have and what they can do to add value to help their customers address those problems. And Mark is a master at that, at understanding how to drive value for customers. So it was actually fantastic to get to see him in action. And I also love the fact that all the leaders that you mentioned, they also challenge you and are constantly pushing you to get better. And it wasn't just Mark. Salesforce has phenomenal leaders across the board. I worked with a bunch of great executives there, but obviously Mark sets the tone as one of the founders. And you know, I, I learned a lot about customer focus from him and how to set the bar there. And he's also a great product visionary. He's not just the sales and marketing guru. He's the Everybody knows that about Mark, but he's the the whole package, at least in my opinion. 
I mean, they're still not done. To your point, you left Cisco a couple of years ago. They're 80, now 90,000. Salesforce is doing the same thing. It is absolutely incredible. Yeah. These big companies continue to get bigger and grow and add more and more value to customers. And it's a testament to their leadership. Yeah, it definitely is. Okay, so go ahead. Tell me about PagerDuty. Tell the audience. So you mentioned some of the background. And it's interesting because I, I had two reactions when I joined PagerDuty. There is my more technically oriented friends that said, that is awesome. That company has so much opportunity, good call. And then there was the non-technical savants. What the heck is PagerDuty? And I got a myriad of different jokes. So here is PagerDuty in a nutshell. The three founders started, they came out of Amazon. And they were in Amazon early days of what we call DevOps now, which is starting to get to be more and more mainstream. But it's really the notion in engineering around driving accountability around certain digital services, reliability of those services, and being able to constantly innovate on those services in the digital world. And in the early days of this, our founders, some of them saw an opportunity because whenever something would break and a service would go down, they all had pagers. Pagers would go off. And people that are in engineering and developers, they remember this, that they've been around a little while. Everybody get page and you'd be on a bridge with maybe dozens of people, sometimes more than dozens, like up to a hundred of people trying to figure out, people trying to prove their innocence, if you will. Well, it wasn't my thing that broke because all these <laughs> systems are so interdependent. So they saw an opportunity where, hey, what if we could take all of this information and this real-time work, this stuff that comes up and takes you off your day, like you go into work each day and you're like, hey, I'm going to do all these things today and be super productive. And then something hits you that you weren't planning on and totally sucks your entire day. And that's what we call real-time work. And it's a thing because as companies move to digital services and full service ownership, these services need to constantly be up. And when real-time work pops up, you need to be able to respond quickly. And when you need to be able to respond, you need to be able to see what happened, what broke, and then who needs to fix it? And in what order do these people need to fix it? And, and orchestrate that work, whether it's to humans, or to machines. So we are the platform for real-time work. We integrate all the different systems and tools into our platform, give a lot of visibility to issues, whether they're alerts or incidents or things that really need to be prioritized and responded to and help customers keep their services up and running and their customers happy and their employees happy too, because there's employee services. It's a great company. I actually, I love it. So can you tell me more about, I want to jump back into like going from Cisco to Salesforce to now PagerDuty. Jennifer, I listened to a couple of the podcasts that she talked about her decision-making criteria coming to PagerDuty. And I'm going to touch on those in a little bit, but I would love to hear how it went down for you. Tell us the story. Was it, you know, the back alley meeting in San Francisco somewhere? You guys ran into each other at the battery. Like, how did that go down? Well, I will tell you, if I hadn't met Jennifer, I'd still be at Salesforce because I was having a great time. It was a challenging decision for me. I'm a very loyal person. Last company I was at was there 18 years. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Nobody can take loyalty away from you. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I attribute a lot in love. I still have a lot of friends at Salesforce, but we met through a mutual friend in the, in the VC community. And, and this friend kept saying, you got to meet Jennifer, she is a great leader. I know you you like to always learn and connect with great leaders. And we connected at one point when we could finally 
align schedules. And she told me a lot about where the company's going, where they had opportunities, the market opportunity, the product market fit. And she was just really impressive. I liked her candor. I like her vision and her energy. And talking to a lot of people that have worked with her or for her, everybody would say the same thing. So when the opportunity popped up and it became real, the way I evaluated it is I looked at a few things. So first, you got to look at the customers. What do customers say about this technology? And I called some of my technical friends, some very reputable Silicon Valley companies, but even outside of Silicon Valley. And the interesting thing that I saw is everybody that used PagerDuty loved it. And that's something that a lot of companies strive for, to have your customers being a raving fan. So getting that feedback from customers was huge. Then I started doing a little research on the market. And this market, just their core product, where we're considered, our core product, where we're considered a market leader, we have a $25 billion TAM market opportunity. And it's early days. There is a lot of room to run. So I see the potential to turn us into a billion-dollar company. The question is not if, but when. Billion in top line. And we're getting into a lot of adjacent markets that are going to expand the aperture of that TAM because we solve real problems. In fact, I mean, I look at the TAM, one of the parallels I drew is when you look at the success of Salesforce, they were really that system of engagement for sales ops and sales leaders. I look at PagerDuty is the system of engagement in the DevOps world or for developers and engineers, but that system of engagement for engineers or SREs or people that touch technology, and we're moving into IT and SecOps and security and all those areas. So there's a lot of parallels because early days PagerDuty, engineers were swiping their credit card to get access to PagerDuty, and it's a very viral product. We have a self-serve capability. So we talked about customers, we talked about market opportunity, and then I met the leadership team, really strong leadership team. You want to be part of a group of people that have skill sets that complement each other, that are collaborative, that can debate, but then move forward. And I saw that in the leadership team here. So I talked to a couple of mentors of mine and they kind of said, great CEO, great product market fit, strong leadership team your skill set will complement what they're doing. Why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, great story. So the way I think about this is your experience lends itself well in a lot of very particular ways. And so I think about it like if you're a rep and you've never closed a million dollar deal before, you can't even imagine what that looks like or feels like, or you can't even conceptualize how to even go about asking for it. Like it just seems so foreign right? Or if you're a leader and you need to go hit your first 50 million of ARR and you've only been at 5 million, you can't even imagine what it means to work backwards from that number and have enough feet on the street to actually go accomplish that. And you actually usually don't give yourself enough credit because it's just about, okay, you go hire those people, you get them up and running, you enable them, and then you're off to the races. You have that and you can imagine that. My question is, maybe we'll use Cisco as an example. Could you imagine when Cisco was at 20,000 employees that at some point before you left, it was going to be at 80,000? Now it's at 700 employees. Do you feel like your perspective has changed and you can imagine what 80,000 employees could look like at this company? And does that give 
you, your team, and the organization, just a sense of confidence that permeates from you as the leader, having been there, done that, and seen it before? Absolutely. I mean, it's the reason I'm here. I see it, and it's about getting the rest of the leadership team in my organization to see it. Our, our executive leadership team sees the opportunity, and we're motivated by that opportunity. It's just about us making sure we take advantage of what's in front of us and we move fast and in alignment. So it's about leadership's all about painting that vision for your people so that they see the same opportunity that the leaders see as well. And that notion of real-time work that I talked about, it's not just in engineering or under the CTO's organization or under the CIO's organization in IT. It's also in, we're starting to see a lot of momentum in our business in customer service because a lot of technically oriented or many different types of companies, when customers call in and they've got a problem with their service, that's real-time work where that service agent needs to know what's happening and be able to triage it and get the work that needs to, to resolve the problem to the right people at the right time. That's a new area. And if you look at how much that expands our TAM, I mean, it's huge with all the customer service folks that are out in the world. Similar problem set in security. And I could name a lot of different areas where real time pops up and companies really struggle to get the right people on the right problem at the right time. I love that. That's great. So, okay. Challenges and opportunities scaling this thing to get it to 8,000, 80,000 and beyond. Why don't I start with a couple of... And by the way, I don't look at it as far as the number of people. I think we provide the right amount of value to our customers, it's going to be about the top line. And I know, but it's got to sound dramatic on the podcast. Yeah, How else okay. am I supposed to put it? Yeah, exactly. No, that's absolutely right. By delivering more value to your customers, you earn the opportunity to deliver more revenue for your shareholders, yeah. which absolutely- and accelerate our growth to capture the opportunity. That's exactly right. So challenges and opportunities scaling. I'm going to start with a couple challenges, if that's okay. And then dive into the opportunities, which I think we've already touched on. And then I want to touch on a few quotes that I pulled from other podcasts that Jennifer has been on and get your reaction or thoughts to those quotes. Is that all fair? That's great. Okay. All right. Challenges. So on your Q3 earnings call, management had explained that it front-loaded sales hires in the first half of FY20. And I think this preceded you, if I'm not mistaken. And- it didn't get those reps and sales hires up to speed fast enough in territories where there was strong demand and that hurt overall sales productivity. And they said in the earnings call, with Justice set to join PagerDuty in early January, there could be some disruption in the sales force in the first part of next year if he decides that some of the recently hired reps aren't the right fit for the company. And so I know I'm like throwing this quote on you and you definitely weren't expecting it. And it's a tough one, admittedly. How do you react to that? What does that mean to you, that statement in the earnings call? And this is probably a year and a half ago, maybe? That was a year ago. So that was because yeah. we're in our Q3 now. I started in Q4 of our last fiscal. So that was right as I was joining. And when you mention challenges and opportunities, I mean, everything you do is going to have challenge with it. And I think the opportunities far outweigh the challenges, but we're certainly going to have to focus on challenges. And so, you know, what you mentioned there to create that multiplier effect, to make that impact on the customer that we've been talking about, you definitely have to have 
the right culture in the go-to-market organization. And I will tell you, I've been really impressed with our go-to-market team. And here's the opportunity where we can improve. Traditionally, as I mentioned, we're known in the engineering organization and in that DevOps world as being part of the DevOps toolkit. And I've heard that from many, many customers. But what's happening is companies go through these digital transformations and you have a product that's very viral and has that network effect. What you see is because of the the e-commerce capability of our platform, people start swiping their credit card and all of a sudden PagerDuty starts spreading around these organizations and executives start to go, what's PagerDuty? Or, hey, we're going to do this digital transformation. What do we need to do? to drive accountability around certain services or speed or reliability or all these things. So the reason I bring that up is one of the opportunities that we need to continue to challenge ourselves on and grow around is obviously work with a technical buyer, but we got to get better and continue to improve on how we deal with executives and articulate value. So we have revamped some enablement to make sure the enterprise sellers that are getting pulled into different areas and to different buying personas understand how to not just talk about the technology, but talk about the value that that technology has. I'm very confident in our team's ability to get into technical conversations. But then when you talk about what are the impacts of moving a bunch of workloads to the cloud and availability of those workloads and how you operate those moving forward. What is the impact of downtime? How much downtime do you have? If your digital cash register goes down, how much does that cost you and how do you quantify it? And how long does it take you to respond? You know, basically what's the cost of a minute? So getting people to not only talk about to our the technical folks, but have that C-suite conversation. And that's where we're going. So we've doubled down on that. There was some of that going on. And I think that's a huge opportunity for us as we drive brand awareness with different buyers. Yep, that makes sense. And, you know, I had the CRO of Circle CI, Jane Kim, on the show, and I come from this world. It's, it's difficult to be bilingual in this world of DevOps because you do have to deliver technical value, often through a POC or getting enough of a groundswell to ensure that they see the value that PagerDuty can help them achieve in their IT organization. Then you have to take the technical value that you've built up and then build a business case around it. And then you have to empower your champion to be able to speak the same language as you are to articulate to the CIO or the CTO, what business value are you creating with a very technical product? That is not easy. And then lastly, the problem, the good problem that PagerDuty has is that you're growing so quickly that you need to hire people as fast as humanly possible which, oh, by the way, we have a new incoming CRO that's going to come in and bring on their leaders who are going to hire their people. It is not an easy problem. And it's a good one, but it's not easy. Yeah. And by the way, you mentioned CTO and CIO. The thing I'm really excited about is our largest transaction this quarter, it went to the CEO. And we've got multiple CEO level conversations that are happening. And we've got to be able to unearth the value that we're providing And it really comes down to how do we help them serve their customers more effectively? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe one more point on this. As I think about the support system that large companies have, there is a reason for that, right? Like you can't grow to the company's size that PagerDuty aspires to be 
without having enablement and support and success and all the things that you're going to need in order to help empower your employees to speak the language of the customer in a really effective way. And that's, again, a good problem to have, but I think certainly one that was highlighted in that earnings report. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Opportunities. So there's a couple of things that are very exciting to investors and the like about PagerDuty. One is that relatively consistently, there's been a net retention of 130% or more on this business. So what does that mean? That means for every $100 that a customer pays you, that next year, assuming you do very little with that customer, they will pay you $130. So an extra 30% on top of the flat renewal. What does that actually mean in practice? It means that the product is really damn good because it's solving a problem for them that to your point earlier, virally just continues to go outward through their organization. So they need more seats, they need more licenses, whatever it is, they need more of it. Maybe we could start there. Was that something that caught your eye when you joined the business? I know Jennifer's talked about that in the past. Tell me more. It caught my eye, definitely, because it shows the stickiness of the product. And I will tell you that the interesting thing when we talk about the virality of the product and that self-service capability of the product being really product-led, it is really important because if you're an engineer, the more people that are on pager duty, the more people that are there to help you, which allows you to actually focus on the things that you want to do in, in your job. So it almost, they encourage more people to get on it. So we typically will start with teams that come in through our website and then a couple of teams jump on and then another couple of teams jump on. And now IT is saying, hey, gosh, you know, the Eng team over here is doing such a great job. What are you guys doing? And then we move into IT, but the value's there. And one of the metrics that really has been impressive to me since I got here is like clockwork, a third of our customers expand every quarter. So we've got well over 13,000 customers and a third of them are expanding each quarter, which shows the power of that virality. Absolutely. That's incredible. Good problem to have as a sales leader. So the second thing is that the product, and you had just alluded to this, but the product gets better as more people use it. And when I mean better, it adds more value to organizations as more people use it. And so the example could be like Venmo, which is a cash payment app. If I'm using Venmo and my mom and dad are using Venmo, but my eight closest friends aren't using Venmo, Venmo doesn't actually have a lot of value for me because the network is too small. Facebook is a very similar thing, right? If you and I are on Facebook, but Jennifer is not, well, then what's the point, right? How can we keep in touch with those that we need to keep in touch with? This is a very similar thing. And so I think it's closely coupled to this net retention where it helps to have others on the PagerDuty platform and the product actually gets better the more people that use it. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. And I, I would say one thing that we would call out is when you talk to companies that talk about this notion of full service ownership, where they want to drive whatever service you're talking about that impacts customers or employees, somebody's got to own that. There's a lot of complexity around that. And the more you can see, the better armed you are to respond to things, to 
fix things, to prevent things, and even predict things. And something that's interesting, I think, about our platform and a differentiator is we integrate 370 different types of technologies into our platform where we can ingest data and we see all these alerts and challenges. But we also see when you're talking about a service, what is this service dependent on? What are all the different technologies that this service needs to use to work? And through machine learning, you can start to understand that data and get out in front of some of these challenges or resolve them faster. The product helps to educate people. Our customers help to educate people. We also try to help educate our customers on the power of those integrations as well. Yep. And the last that I wanted to bring up was that you're starting to see really meaningfully sized deals. And again, you alluded to this earlier, but you know, when the deal size is big enough or the value is large enough that it hits the CEO's desk, that's the big leaks. And so a couple of quotes that I'll pull, I said a couple, just one. A major athletic fashion company began with two users paying $40 a month with the credit card and now pays $10,000 a month. And they're still paying with the credit card. And again, over time, as you build up a groundswell of value through these DevOps teams, then it naturally earns you the right to have opportunities to expand into larger and larger deals with these companies. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the flywheel that we're looking for. Actually, one comment on that, and it's interesting because the question comes up a lot of time. You've got these self-serve capabilities. How do you blend that with the enterprise sales force? One of the largest technology manufacturers in the world, right after I started, one of the sales leaders came to me and said, hey, I've got a deal that's going to come in at the end of the month, and I'm sorry, it wasn't in our forecast. They placed a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar deal through self-serve. And I said, that's okay. <laughs> like, I like forecast accuracy, but that, that is beautiful. There's a lot of companies that would strive for that. Like The product was proving the value on its own. You're helping to connect the dots with all the relationships across this big enterprise. And there was a group that just said, hey, we don't need to call anybody. We're just going to place an order. I'm okay with that. That's a hell of a way to start at a company. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. So a couple of Jennifer quotes that I want to pull that I thought were analogous to our conversation. So if you'll indulge me, the first, she said, when you come into a new job, often your instinct is to come in there and be quote unquote, the fixer. And Jay Schneider and I talked about this from New Relic because he just joined there as well. And I don't know, you're nine months in and you're a doer and your instinct is to go do as quickly as possible. So Maybe just give me your reaction to that and, and how has it felt for you in the first nine or so months? Yeah, I mean, I can relate big time to that quote. <laughs> she also made a comment very shortly after I joined that the honeymoon period's over. <laughs> I chuckled that, but I totally appreciated it at the same time. So I, I think the key thing, it's about listening and having some patience and not just listening to employees, but listening to customers, listening to the other cross-functional areas that are critical to our success across the organization, and then giving feedback and making sure you have a vision match on where we're going. And then you start making decisions. I think if you just go without looking at data and asking a bunch of whys, why are we doing it this way across the board, you're going to position yourself to have more failures than you would like. 
So listening is a big part of it. So I, I spent a lot of time going out and doing just that with everybody. There's a lot of new people that we've brought on board. Shortly after I started, we brought on board a new head of North America Enterprise. His name's Keith Cattell. He joins us. He ran the Americas for Tanium. He ran financial services at Salesforce. We weren't there at the same time, but he was at Tanium while I was at Salesforce. But he joined us to help us continue to uh, grow and scale our enterprise business. We brought in Manjula Talreja. She is our first chief customer officer, and she's building out our customer success organization. And she has a very diverse and successful track record. And she's helping us to really drive, continue to improve how we add value after the sale. How do we actually bring, we talk about, I talked about business value at the beginning and how we can articulate the business value that technology provides, but it's about how you realize that value. So Manjula is driving that for us through customer success, through services, through support. And then I brought in a head of strategy and ops globally, Mm -hmm. uh, Josh Thacker, who has a nice blend of big company, small company experience, which actually is really good with a company our size. And he's helping us to make sure we free up productivity for the sales reps and make sure the strategy sound, but how we operate is sound as well. So those were some of the key areas. And they've obviously, those folks bring in their team. There are others, but that was only after doing a lot of listening with the exception of Josh's role was already open right when I came in. Yeah, I did my, I called it the Kleiner listening tour for three or four months in the first four months there. And finally they were like, okay, you're listening to us. Like it's time to get going. Similar reaction, like a honeymoon period's over. Okay. Second quote. She said, I spend 30 to 40% of my time minimum on developing the leadership team. So I want to ask you this question from both sides. One, is that true? And does she spend that time with you? Two, do you have the same sets of beliefs around spending the same amount of time with your leadership team and some of those who you had just mentioned? Absolutely. So Jen is passionate about leadership and leadership development, and she definitely walks the talk, which is great to see. She's very supportive of you know my personal development efforts. And the thing that I really appreciate and love about Jen is her candor. She's one of those people that you always know where you stand or what she thinks about certain things, which I think builds trust. And we can debate certain things, but we always can end at a good place and then move forward. But we're doing some great things at PagerDuty to help with leadership development across the board. We've got some programs that are formal training and we're expanding on that. So she definitely lives what she preaches on that front. And it's something I'm passionate about as well. So I'm very much focused on it. But one thing I I tell a lot of leaders is, you know, you have to own your own personal development and own your career. People are going to help you, but you can't just sit and wait for somebody to tell you how to develop. I mean, it is the job of your direct manager to tell you what you're great at and where you need to develop, but you just can't always sit back and wait for that to happen. So you got to take the bull by the horns when it comes to that. And, you know, me personally, there's things that I do. We mentioned mentors earlier on in the conversation. I feel very fortunate to have some great mentors that I can lean on. But I also think mentoring others is a great way to develop as well, because you're constantly learning from other people that you actually mentor. And 
you know, I read a lot and I think I, I'm constantly trying to learn about new stuff. And when you're teaching others, learning from others, that's how you create, I mentioned the multiplier effect. And you're like, you create an organization that is the, uh, if you haven't read that book, it's a very good book. And I was, when I first started at Salesforce, they'd given it out to all the employees in training. The multiplier effect. Yeah, it's called multipliers. Liz Whiteman, I think it is, but I had read it before I got mm. there. I think the philosophy is spot on. So anyways, that's just a little bit about that. Okay, rolling along, and I'm going to skip this last quote because I want to be respectful of your time. And I want to talk about crisis leadership and we're already touching on the leadership development stuff. So I want to read you two quotes to start this thing off about two leaders that I really respect. And I think their reputation as an incredible leader was forged in moments of hardship and crisis. So the first is a fellow by the name of Ed Stack. He was the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods. And there was a time in our country, and there still is, and it's very, very sad, where school shootings were continuing to increase. And firearm sales were a big part of Dick's business. And Ed persuaded his board and the management team to basically discontinue the sale of firearms. And, you know, there was a lot of people that disagreed with that, including his entire leadership team and all the NRA and everybody else associated with that decision. And he did it because it was the right thing. That's one. And it was a reputation right then and there that he forged as someone with integrity that was trying to do the right thing. The second is Winston Churchill. As the Nazis were kind of coming down in World War II, he encouraged his people to keep faith. He said, we shall not fail or falter. We shall not weaken or tire. Neither the sudden shock of battle nor the long drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. And look, these are obviously much different types of leadership in much different times, but nonetheless, leadership that was forged through very, very challenging and difficult situations. And in the context of this conversation, again, bringing it full circle, you have been a technology leader for a very long time. And there has been some technology challenges in your career that I noticed that I wanted to just talk about and get your sense of, all right, you're going through this rodeo probably for a third time now. When the dot-com bubble crashed, you were at Cisco. I was a dot-com rep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Try that one on for a crisis. Okay, so you were a Bay Area dot-com rep Yeah, after, at Cisco. I, after I got out of that training program, yeah. Okay, well, let me go through all three of them, and then I just want to hear it from you. The second was that you covered the Southwest patch when the housing bubble crashed. Right. So like basically the worst of the worst area when everything came crashing down. And now you joined PagerDuty when in like February, March? Yeah. Pre-COVID, two months before, right after SKO, we had to shut down the world. That's right. That's right. And so we're recording this October 20-ish in 2020. It's probably going to be released sometime next year. But nonetheless, you've basically been doing this thing remote the entire time in a time that none of us have ever seen before. So I will just leave it there and get your reaction to everything that I just said. Well, I feel kind of like you're saying I'm a magnet for crisis or problems <laughs> <laughs> when you put it that way. I mean, you're actually creating some anxiety for, for me. No, in, in all seriousness, I just to, before I touch on that, just to come back to the, the comment you made on Dick's Sporting Goods, because that is an example that you're starting to see across corporations around the world now of value-driven 
leadership or value-driven companies. And I can say I saw a lot of that at Salesforce. PagerDuty absolutely is a value-driven organization on multiple fronts. So that's a great example of that. But when, when you talk about crisis leadership, here's a couple of fundamental tenets, and then I've got one story for you. Does that work? Great. Perfect. So unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I have had a lot of experience with this. And so first and foremost, I think it's really important that you over-communicate with your people and customers. I can't emphasize that enough when you're going into a crisis. Even if you think it is too much, it's probably still not enough because depending on the severity of the crisis. Number two, these are all of equal importance. So there's number one is communication. Next is empathy. Having empathy for what everybody's dealing with. Like right now, this is hard because not only are people running into difficult business challenges, but everybody's got their unique family circumstances or home circumstances that they're dealing with at the same time. And just having an understanding of that and empathize with people is really important. I mean, you and I were talking earlier about this is tough to be a sales leader. I mean, I'm an extrovert. I'm locked in my office all the time. I get energy from people. But we're now many months, seven months of not being in the office. It's, it wears on people. So having some empathy. And then the other thing is, and this sounds like a cliche, but it's very much true, it's focus on what you can control. And it's kind of stoic, but if you spend a lot of time focusing on the things that are totally out of your control, you're going to drive yourself crazy and you're going to increase your stress level and you're not going to be operating at a really high level. So those are the three things, communicating, empathy, and focusing on what you can control. So the story that popped in my head when you went through all those different jobs, I was having some vivid flashbacks but that job in the Southwest with Cisco, if anybody from my, any of my sales teams is listening, they know this story because I've, I've told this story during the COVID time a lot. But I was in my first leadership job, took over the Southwest business, which the majority of that business at that time in the commercial space for Cisco was home builders, people who supply home builders that make like doors and windows in that area of the, the country, commercial real estate mortgage, banks, you know, you name it. And we get down there and I go to meet with a couple of the home builders. And it was like that movie, The Big Short, if you've ever seen it. Like oh, yeah. they're starting to paint some really startling picture for me. And so obviously we all know what happened. The housing bubble bursts. That was, there's many ground zeros, but that was one of them. And shortly thereafter, so I take over this team that had done really well during the rise of the bubble. And our CEO, John Chambers, is coming to town to work. And I've got a very significant, large deal with a very important customer. This is the first time in my career my numbers weren't. I was so used to hitting numbers as an individual yeah. contributor. And there's a lot of these things that are happening out of my control. And I'll never forget this. John is such a great leader. He's been such a great mentor and a great person. He sits me down before we go into this briefing. It was actually with the Phoenix Suns, and we were, uh, we were working on a large project with them. The owner, the CEO, everybody was going to be in the room. And I, I was a little bit nervous because I know John knows numbers, and he knew what my forecast was. He knew before we all got together, like he knows all the way down the chain. And he says to me, I'm glad you're going through this. And I said, really? 
you're glad I'm going through this. And he said, I'm glad you're going through this because great leaders can't really lead unless they've been through a crisis or multiple crises. And I said, why? And he said, because you develop empathy. Because at some point in your career, you're going to be leading an even bigger organization. Something bad is going to happen that spins everybody up into a crisis, but you're going to have an understanding of what it's like to be in those people's shoes and you'll be able to empathize with them. And that's incredibly motivating to others and it brings people together. And that quote has stuck with me for my entire career since that point in time. And it actually really motivated me because I went back and we got things on track. We worked through it. That team that we built down there, that we grinded through that crash in 2008, 2009, they've all been very successful at other tech companies to executives at ServiceNow and Salesforce and even in Cisco still. But we're a tight bond because we went through that. So just a little story around the importance of empathy during a crisis. That's a great story, man. And probably a very good place for us to end this. I want to get you out of here on time. I wrap these things with the same couple questions. The first, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? Well, we kind of talked about it. I think grit is what's needed to get through crisis leadership. That's another good book, by the way, by Angela Duckworth. If people haven't read it, I'm sure you read it because your podcast is like... Yeah, it's the inspiration to the name of the podcast. Yeah. So if you recall in that book, there's a McKinsey study that she references quite a bit throughout the book. And she talks about how talent and effort equal skill, but skill and effort equal achievement. And that kind of comes back to, you can have skill, which is you know talent and effort, but you really need to grind through things. Skill alone won't get you there. It's that grit or that effort that's gonna help you to achieve great things. So that kind of comes back to what I talked about with focusing on what you can control and not letting setbacks take you off your game, just staying focused. Because this environment we're in right now, I keep telling our team, it will end at some point. Like we don't know when it's gonna end, but that's what motivates me. I know it's gonna end. So we're gonna keep grinding and then we're gonna appreciate things even that much more when we're all able to interact in person again. No doubt. If someone wants to get a hold of you, Dave, are you hiring? What roles are you hiring for and, and what's the best way to do so? Yes, we are hiring, hiring for lots of different positions, both sales leadership, customer success, services, service sales, like lots of jobs. So you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, just Dave Justice, and also Twitter, which is Dave JSTC. Dave, thanks for your time, man. This was fun. Appreciate it. Jubin, thanks, man. Great catching up. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.